Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then... She can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire.
Last time on Obscura, you heard part one of our story. In the early hours of January 20th, 2017, 26-year-old James Gargasulis had stabbed his brother Angela with a kitchen knife in the street outside their mother's Melbourne apartment. James fled the scene in a maroon Holden Commodore, a vehicle he stole from his mother's partner. He was gone before police arrived, having taken off speeding through Melbourne's southern suburbs. James was well known to police. He was a repeat offender with a string of convictions for violent offenses, dangerous driving, and evading police. He'd also been heavily using methamphetamines or ice for at least a year. Those around him noticed his behavior and mental health changed dramatically. He became unstable, paranoid, confrontational, and was prone to ranting about nonsensical ideas. James also had a history of baiting police into engaging in high-speed vehicle pursuits. Unfortunately for officers on the ground, Victoria Police's restrictive and ambiguous vehicle pursuit policy meant that officers' hands were often tied when it came to being able to apprehend James. Police were often forced to call off pursuits in accordance with the policies and guidelines around public safety. After James stabbed his brother, police had been attempting to locate James for around 12 hours. But he'd evaded police on several occasions as he was on the move throughout Melbourne's southern and western suburbs. Local police made several requests for the Critical Incident Response Team, or CERT, to attend to intervene and arrest James, but these requests were repeatedly declined on the basis that the situation didn't meet their threshold for a critical incident. Finally, several hours later, CERT agreed to respond, and officers were pursuing James around Melbourne in unmarked police vehicles, but James remained on the run. By around 1.30 p.m. that afternoon, he was in the Melbourne CBD. Thanks to summer school holidays, the Australia Open tennis tournament, and the fact it was lunchtime, the city was packed. Now, let's get on with it. At around 1.28 p.m., James approached one of Melbourne's busiest intersections, Flinders and Swanston Street, outside Flinders Street Station, Pedestrians and onlookers stopped to stare in utter disbelief at the vehicle, which had brought traffic, including trams, to a standstill. The Commodore's wheels spun, generating acrid smoke as James circled erratically around and around. James was leaning out the driver's side window, making obscene gestures, taunting, swearing, and yelling at the shocked and concerned crowd gathered on the footpaths. Two men bravely ran towards the vehicle with a baseball bat in an attempt to intervene managing to strike the bonnet and windscreen. James accelerated towards the men, who managed to escape. By this time, CERT vehicles had caught up to James, traveling slowly in the vicinity of the out-of-control Commodore. In the background of the following audio of police communications from the scene, you can hear tires of the Commodore screeching as James played Daredevil with the traffic. Two five two. Who have I got nearby that can uh, head that way? Saints two hundred. We're just nearby. 
150 unit is many marked units at the 50 section to block it. ASAP received. I'm in front of the traffic. He will not be going. He's doing donuts, and it's getting dangerous. So he marked units here. To go to Flinders and Swanston. Flinders and Swanston. Street. Uh, sorry, on the way to Swanston and Flinders now. We're not far off trying to block. All members, please be aware that this vehicle, which was the one that was involved in the stabbing, he will be armed with a knife and he is very dangerous. Please be aware. That's 4:20. Uh, two minutes off. Northbound with, uh, I believe, three, at least three police units following him. Northbound Swanston. We're on Swanston northbound. It should be coming straight towards us. Between Flinders Lane and Collins on Swanston, now only about 10 kilometres per hour, but at least three police cars behind him as he approaches Collins and Swanston intersection. Over Collins and continuing northbound on Swanston. But James was soon on the move again. He drove north up Swanston Street, along the tram tracks. Police followed in their vehicles and on foot. Hopefully, things could end before anyone got hurt. But when unmarked cars tried to pull up beside him after he crossed Little Collins Street, he suddenly swerved left, mounting the footpath and accelerating. Numerous pedestrians scattered dashing into shops and darting out of the way, nearly escaping being struck by the Commodore. At 1.32 p.m., James swung the vehicle back onto the road before making a left turn into Burke Street Mall. James drove at around 60 kilometers per hour along the southern footpath, traveling four blocks in less than a minute while maintaining control of the vehicle. Pedestrians who saw the Commodore approaching scrambled to jump out of the way to avoid the oncoming car but many were unable to. Several police vehicles rushed from all directions to intercept the Commodore. Many of them had no opportunity to transmit on the police radio communications. From the time James turned onto Burke Street, the audio reveals the panic, disorganization, and chaos. Onto the footpath now, onto the west side footpath of Swanston. Someone needs to take this vehicle out before it kills someone received. Get an opportunity. Burke Street Mall now. Uncontrolled on Burke Street Mall. Burke Street Mall, Burke Street Mall. Melbourne East 252. East 252, receive that. If uh, you didn't get the opportunity, yes, I need them to take it out before uh, some peg gets squashed. Oh, there's pedestrians here. Burke and Elizabeth, pedestrians here. Any unit that has the opportunity, take the vehicle out. Can I get AV, thanks? Now. Yeah, 265, monitoring. Uh, if we, any unit gets the opportunity to intercept that vehicle and take it out and try and block off any pedestrian area. If any vehicle has the opportunity to take we the vehicle out. down uh, on multiple victims, multiple victims. As many units as you possibly can. We need to take him out. As many units available, please head straight to the street. victims at the intersection of Burke. Transit 251. Need ambos, I've lost odds on the vehicle. I've lost odds. I'll just uh, maintain a uh, cordon over the city. Roger, last direction of travel. North 507. We'll be on route in about one minute. Roger, and how many patients have we got out there, Transit 251? Melbourne East 260. I'll take charge of the scene at Burke Street. You need We need multiple units to go. Where the up? Um, Collins Street, there's victims all on Collins Street received. 
The following witness statements describe the sudden carnage. Quote, People were literally just flying like Skittles, bouncing off the bonnet, and smashing into the shops. There were a few gaps, and then you started hearing yelling, and a few people scream. Bodies were flying across the windscreen, and over the back. Others were under the car. Quote, he was going like a bat out of hell. Didn't care who he collected. Straight up the footpath. People were screaming. It was chaotic. Quote, I saw the car on the footpath, and I saw the people out of the corner of my eye, flying in the air. There were three or four contorted bodies on the ground. I could see the people on the footpath that had been run over. There was a girl standing right in front. The car had missed her. She looked around, saw the bodies, looked down the street, and just started screaming. You don't even know what you're watching, looking at it as it unfolds. A taxi driver named Lou, who had previous military training, was sitting in his cab outside the RACV club when the Commodore accelerated up Burke Street. Lou's instinct, training, and adrenaline kicked in. He ran towards those who had been struck by the Commodore, rendering what first aid he could, calming and reassuring them that help was on the way. Lou calmly directed other uninjured pedestrians to tend to others in the vicinity who were injured. He was one of many civilians that day who stepped in in terrifying circumstances to care for others. 25-year-old Japanese student, Yusuke Kano, was the fourth person struck by the Commodore outside a store near the block arcade. He and his friend, Cashew, were close to the intersection of Elizabeth Street when they became aware of the vehicle traveling behind them on the footpath. Both men attempted to get out of harm's way, but were unable to do so. The vehicle collided with Yasuke with such force that he was flung into the air and thrown meters forward, sustaining head, facial, and chest injuries. Yasuke died at the scene. 22-year-old Sydney resident and insurance consultant Jess Moody was the 13th person struck by the vehicle. She was heading out to lunch with five other colleagues, walking along Burke Street, between Elizabeth and Queen Street, all of whom were also injured. When the Commodore collided with Jess from behind, she was lifted approximately a meter off the ground and hurled forward into a wall of a building at the corner of McKillop in Burke Street. She sustained massive head injuries and died almost immediately. 33-year-old architect, husband, and father of one Matthew C. was the 19th person to be struck. He was run down from behind near the intersection of Burke and McKillop Streets. On his way back to work following lunch with his wife, the force of the impact threw Matthew forward a considerable distance before he landed on the ground. Bystanders wrapped Matthew in blankets and jackets to keep him warm and placed a towel over his head to stem the bleeding. He was rushed to Royal Melbourne Hospital for emergency neurosurgery to treat his extensive head injuries. 33-year-old financial consultant Bavita Patel was the 22nd person struck by the vehicle as she walked along Burke Street, Bavita was struck by the Commodore from behind. She was thrown forward a significant distance and sustained head trauma, an open fracture on her right leg, and a penetrating left eye injury. She was taken to Royal Melbourne Hospital for emergency surgery, just like Matthew C. Ten-year-old Talia Haken was holding her mother Natalie's hand when she 
Her mother and nine-year-old sister Maggie were struck near the corner of Chancery Lane. Witnesses saw Talia go straight under the right front tire of the Commodore. The collision fractured Talia's skull, her right humerus, and left femur. Soon after impact, with her family scattered across the footpath, Maggie was tended to by strangers. She bravely managed to call her father, Tony, at his nearby office in Flinders Lane. Tony ran to the scene where he found Maggie and his wife. There was no sign of Talia. But nearby, blood ran out from under a blanket, which appeared to be covering a small body. Talia was the 24th person hit by the Commodore. She died at the scene from her head injuries. Three-month-old Zachary Bryant and his two-year-old sister Zara were in their double pram, which was being pushed by their nanny, Aaron, along the southern footpath of Burke Street. The Commodore struck the group, ripping the pram from Aaron's grip. James was driving so fast that he made impact with the pram. It became wedged in the bonnet of the vehicle and was carried along for about 150 meters. Zara somehow miraculously remained in the pram. She suffered numerous serious injuries, including skull and spinal fractures, a brain injury, and burns and abrasions to her face. But Zachary who was the 29th person struck, was hurled forward out of the pram, landing a staggering 68 meters from the point of impact. Zachary's condition at the scene meant law enforcement couldn't wait for an ambulance. Police officers cradled Zachary in their arms as he was driven to the hospital in a police car. On the way, Zachary stopped breathing when the police officers commenced CPR. Like Matthew C., Pavita Patel, and many others. Zachary underwent emergency surgery to treat his catastrophic injuries. Less than two minutes after the vehicle collided with Zachary, gunshots rang out. Frantic pedestrians had no idea whether this was police fire or whether something far more horrifying had occurred. Thankfully, the latter wasn't the case. Police had rammed the Commodore, bringing it to a stop on the corner of Burke and William Streets. A piece of the undercarriage had fallen off, and the windscreen was damaged from the repeated impact with pedestrians. A group of officers surrounded the vehicle with their firearms drawn. Officers shot at James, striking him in the right arm. He was then tasered before being dragged onto the footpath, where he was restrained. He was taken to the hospital where he was kept under police guard following surgery. The haunting echo of piercing sirens in the CBD could be heard throughout the rest of the afternoon. The center of town was blocked off and emergency crews from more than 40 ambulances worked to attend to the bodies of the injured, which were strewn along Burke Street. Three people were dead, and dozens more had to be rushed to hospitals around the city. In a complete, but some may say fortuitous coincidence, former Victoria Police Commissioner Christine Nixon was herself on Burke Street as James tore down the crowded mall, barely missing her. Christine told the Age newspaper that almost instinctively, she stepped onto the road and started to direct traffic while waiting for first responders to arrive. Amongst the many updates provided to the public in the hours after the attack, Victoria Police announced that the incident was not terror-related. The Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, held a press conference expressing his condolences and condemning the attack. Our hearts are breaking this afternoon that... A number of people have died. 
others remain in a critical condition, very, very seriously or gravely ill in hospitals around our city. But we are stronger than this. We, through our response, through the work of our emergency services, the work that the instinctive way in which Victorians have reached out to support each other, we can be confident that we are stronger than this evil criminal act. Tragically, Matthew C. died in the hospital later that day as a result of his injuries. The next day only brought worse news. That evening at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, Zachary Bryant's parents made the heartbreaking decision to turn off their baby son's life support, and he died in their arms. Meanwhile, further police inquiries had revealed that a urine sample taken from James tested positive for amphetamines, barbiturates, and benzos. He had clearly been under the influence of drugs on January 20th. Two days after the attack, the Victorian government established what became known as the Burke Street Fund. The state kicked off donations by contributing $100,000. The proceeds raised would be provided to survivors who were hospitalized and families of the victims, covering immediate and long-term physical and psychological care and support and funeral costs. Before the Burke Street Fund closed, the fundraising efforts were a demonstration of the wave of compassion and support from the community. In the end, more than 4,000 people donated over $1.5 million. From the time the police cordon was removed and Burke Street was reopened to the public, Melbourne residents and tourists alike found themselves gravitating towards the inner city. Silent crowds congregated at various locations along the street, most notably outside the heritage-listed Old Melbourne General Post Office at the intersection of Burke and Elizabeth Streets. Mourners quietly wept and solemnly paid their respects, leaving floral tributes, teddy bears, candles, and cards outside the 19th century architectural landmark. As the hours passed, the carpet of flowers at the makeshift memorial grew, eventually spreading four meters outward onto the footpath. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery. One that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned. And keep your wits about you. 
On January 23rd, James Gargasoulas was assessed as mentally fit to be interviewed by the police and was not deemed to be suffering from drug-induced psychosis. However, the extent of his participation during his interview was limited to one repeated response to every question, quote, no comment. Despite his lack of cooperation, James was charged with five counts of murder. He exercised his right not to attend his first court appearance on the basis that he was unwell. He was remanded to next appear in court in December. Police continued working hard to gather eyewitness statements, ultimately taking accounts from over 300 people. It's still only been a matter of days since the attack, but the government recognized the need for people to publicly come together to share their grief, pain, and disbelief. A moving memorial service was held in Federation Square, opposite Flinders Street Station, in honor of the victims and those whose lives still hung in the balance. Sadly, on January 28th, Bavita Patel's family made the heart-wrenching decision to turn off her life support and donate her organs. She never regained consciousness following the attack. In addition to 27 survivors James had injured, he had now murdered six people. James's parents each told the media that they wanted nothing further to do with their son and were horrified by his actions. His father, Christos, told Channel 7 News, quote, Of course he's responsible. I scratch him off my books. He's not the Jimmy I used to know. His mother, Emily, lamented, quote, I'm ashamed of him, and I'm ashamed to be his mom. I'm so sorry to the families he's hurt. When I found out about what he did, I felt sick. So sick in my stomach. I don't want to be known that I'm the mother. The only message she had for her oldest son was, quote, Go to hell and die in hell. In the hours and days after the attack, questions were already being asked about the timelines of the police response and how James had come to be out on bail, giving his history of violence and repeat offending. The Victorian government announced that the Director of Public Prosecutions would be examining the state's bail system in order to provide urgent advice to legislators regarding bail reform. The Victorian state coroner also announced that the investigation would commence immediately. Intense scrutiny would be applied to the decision-making process around James being granted bail six days before, as well as decisions made by Victoria Police in the 12 hours leading up to the attack. This would include examination of the police operational guidelines, the vehicle pursuit, and critical incident response policies, and the reasons behind the failure to apprehend James before he turned onto Burke Street. Victoria Police Commissioner Graham Ashton defended the actions of the officers involved, publicly stating, quote, From my perspective, all decisions the officers made were in the interest of trying to protect community safety. I am confident in that. When we do pursuits, calls are made by both the officers doing the pursuit and the pursuit controller about whether to continue pursuits, based largely on the behavior of the driver. A veteran highly respected crime journalist for the age, John Sylvester, wrote, quote, The attack on pedestrians by a known, violent, charged offender with a history of drug abuse and mental health problems will lead to calls for the bail structure to be scrutinized in the same way. There will be outrage and calls for major reform, and this time the lawmakers will be forced to listen. It's not a failure of a few officers, but the result of training that has encouraged a generation of police to be risk-averse. 
There's layer after layer of rules and training designed to make policing safer, but the unintended consequence is to encourage police to be slow when it comes to making hard decisions. By this stage, the Victorian Government Security and Emergency Management Cabinet Subcommittee had met to urgently discuss the matter of voluntary bail justice hearing applications after hours. The bigger issue to be tackled was, of course, the implications for bail law reform. According to the Age newspaper, more than 794 people were referred to victim support agencies in weeks following the attack. A report in the Herald Sun newspaper noted that 27 police officers who were involved in the incident had taken sick leave as a direct result of the massacre. Two officers had been so traumatized by the events they'd witnessed that they resigned. It was evident that a deep and painful wound had been violently carved into Melbourne's identity, with no one knowing when or if the scar would heal. In February 2017, the Melbourne Magistrates Court established a night court. Bail requests on weekends and after hours would now be heard by magistrates instead of voluntary bail justices. Three months later, the Victorian government announced further reforms to the state's bail system based on 37 recommendations received from the Supreme Court Justice, who conducted the review. Key recommendations included a review of the overall role and appropriateness of bail justices and new powers for police to remand adult offenders overnight. It was also proposed that the presumption of bail be removed for serious offenses, such as rape, kidnapping, and armed robbery. In late May 2017, James appeared in court via video link to answer his original charges from January 14th. During the proceedings, the accused killer interrupted, ranting about his most recent charges. Quote, I was under extreme stress, which caused me to have a mental breakdown. It's not fair, Your Honor. Life is being controlled by the government. I'm very saddened by everything that's happened, but it's due to the Illuminati. Soon afterwards, the video link was disconnected to allow the hearings to proceed without further incident. In July 2017, the much-anticipated coronial inquest commenced into the events leading up to the alleged murders. However, it had no sooner begun when the coroner announced that the inquiry would be postponed until the conclusion of the criminal proceedings. The charges against James were next heard in court in mid-December, when he pleaded not guilty to murdering Yosuke Kano, Jess Moody, Matthew C., Bafita Patel, Talia Haken, and Zachary Bryant. James also pleaded not guilty to 27 counts of attempted murder, given he'd waived his right to a committal hearing in the Melbourne's Magistrates Court. James was committed to stand trial in the Supreme Court of Victoria. In the interim, he pleaded not guilty to the charges from January 14th for dangerous driving, evading police, and assaulting Hakir. ABC News reported that additional charges were also laid against James, including the theft of three vehicles between November 2016 and January 2017, breaching bail and drug possession. Two days after James entered his not guilty pleas, the Victorian government announced formal amendments to the Bail Act. This involved the introduction of further police powers and restriction on the role of bail justices in response to the bail review conducted earlier that year. As of July 2018, police officers would be able to hold adult offenders in custody for 48 hours till their bail application could be heard in court. Violent offenders would also be restricted in their requests for bail. 
Just a month after the not guilty pleas, a somber state memorial service was held commemorating the one-year anniversary of the attack. Family members of the six people who had lost their lives spoke candidly before crowds of friends, dignitaries, emergency service personnel, and other members of the public about their grief, loss, and fond memories of their loved ones. That same month, Victoria Police implemented a new operational safety strategy, which aimed to clarify expectations and improve decision-making. The model acknowledged that police, quote, have a role to perform that may, on occasion, require them to undertake tasks that are inherently unsafe to themselves or others. Meanwhile, there was the ongoing question of whether James was mentally fit to stand trial. In phone calls to his parents from jail on February 2018, the accused killer told them, quote, If I'm not found mentally impaired, then I'm looking at like 24 to 30 years or something like that. I ruined my life. It will be a long sentence if I plead guilty. If I play my cards right, it'll be all right. If they class me as mentally impaired, they will release me in five years. Following his not guilty plea the previous December, the defense had been seeking expert medical opinions to determine retrospectively whether James actually had the capacity to enter a plea at the time. Arranging the numerous assessments required resulted in a significant delay to the trial getting underway, and the judge was understandably critical. In March 2018, forensic psychologists for the defense told the court that towards the end of 2016, James had not been experiencing a drug-induced psychosis. They claimed that instead, he had been suffering from the onset of paranoid schizophrenia, meaning he was mentally impaired on January 20th, and therefore remained unfit to enter a plea. Schizophrenia itself is generally defined as a psychotic illness that involves disturbed thinking, including delusions. As the name implies, paranoid schizophrenia is a branch of the illness characterized by delusion that are influenced by paranoia. The medical experts noted that when it came to diagnosing the condition, the symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia could present in a very similar way to drug-induced psychosis. The judge noted that under the law, in terms of a defense of mental impairment, drug-induced psychosis is not in and of itself considered a mental illness. In May 2018, it was determined that James was indeed fit to enter a plea, but the next legal hurdle would be whether a jury considered him fit to stand trial. There was much at stake. If James was found mentally unfit, Victorian court processes could require the case to be adjourned for up to a year. Another assessment of James's mental state would be conducted to determine whether he remained cognitively impaired. While this would allow for due process to be observed, it would present a further delay for the survivors and families of the victims, who are still awaiting an outcome in the midst of dealing with unimaginable grief. When the matter was heard again in late October, the defense claimed their client held a number of persistent delusions. This included a belief that he was the Messiah and would become king, and that the earth would be struck by a comet. The defense also noted that James's schizophrenia had been resistant to treatment, despite various antipsychotic medications being prescribed. However, the prosecution told the court that their mental health experts disagreed that James was mentally impaired on January 20th, 2017. They cited his ability to follow instructions during his subsequent psychiatric assessments and discussed the events leading up to 
as well as on the day of the attack. After one jury was unable to reach a decision about James's fitness to proceed to trial, the matter returned to court to be heard again. The judge told the jury, quote, Just because someone holds deep delusional beliefs and expresses these does not mean they cannot function in a meaningful way, does not mean they are not fit for trial. The jurors agreed. The trial began in November 2018. Both the prosecution and the defense agreed that James had been suffering from a drug-induced psychosis at the time of the massacre. The court heard details of the text message exchange between James and the detective, who was attempting to negotiate with him before he ran down pedestrians in the city. The detective told the court that even though James didn't pull over, he felt he was still in a position where he could negotiate a surrender. The detective based this conclusion on his existing relationship with James from their previous encounters. But by the time the final message had been sent, James was intent on invading police by any means possible. The jury was then shown a 3D police reconstruction video of the route that James took, down Burke Street. The jury watched CCTV footage, which had been recorded at various points in the vicinity of Swanston Street and Burke Street as James drove along the footpaths. Gasps could be heard from around the courtroom as the graphic footage laid bare the extent of James' arbitrary violence as he collided with pedestrians. It was clear that not only was he in control of the Commodore, but was able to skillfully dodge fixed objects in his way. One witness stated that James appeared to steer the Commodore, so it made direct contract with the pram, containing Zachary and Zara Bryant. The court heard that the police and the four unmarked cars, who were following James, felt that it wasn't until he turned onto Burke Street that officers could get close enough to ram the Commodore in order to bring it to a stop without endangering the public. By the time James had been apprehended, the multiple injuries he'd inflicted on his victims and the 27 survivors included severe head injuries, broken legs, ankles and feet lacerations, and contusions to internal organs, fractured ribs, pelvic fractures, spinal injuries, cuts, burns, post-traumatic amnesia, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Several survivors underwent months of intensive rehabilitation and physical therapy. Some of them would never return to work as a result of their physical and psychological injuries. As we know, the youngest victim, Zachary Bryant, was only three months old. The oldest survivor was an 85-year-old woman, a police officer who traveled with James in the ambulance to the hospital. Following his arrest, testified that James told him, quote, it's a very long story, and I will tell you when I get to the hospital. I know I have done wrong, but you must understand why. That was a fucked up thing. I'm not mentally unstable. But the ripple effect of James's actions weren't limited to those whom he killed and physically injured. For many members of the public and first responders who'd witnessed the incident and rendered assistance on that day, the pain and trauma would be lifelong. James was the only witness for the defense and did not contest any of the facts when he took the stand. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, James prattled on about the Illuminati, a comet hitting the earth, government oppression, and his desire to uphold God's law. He maintained that he was largely unaware of what was happening while he was behind the wheel of the Commodore, telling the court, quote, 
I apologize for my heart, but that's not going to fix anything if I say sorry. Neither will a lengthy sentence fix what I've done. On November 13th, after hearing only five days of evidence, the jury retired to deliberate. Before they did so, the judge instructed them to bear in mind what a drug-induced psychosis meant in terms of lessening moral culpability, saying, quote, Delusions brought about by the use of drugs such as ice provide no defense to any criminal charge and do not affect criminal responsibility. Less than an hour later, the jury returned with the unanimous 33 verdicts. James was guilty of six counts of murder, 27 counts of reckless conduct, endangering life. Following the verdict and his return to jail, James was again assessed in prison by psychiatrists. Their evaluation would be crucial in determining the sentence the convicted killer would receive. During this time, James was diagnosed with what was described as long-standing personality difficulties. Specifically, James was found to have both antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders. This was said to be evident in his grandiose sense of self-importance, need for constant, undivided support, and attention of his partners and family, sense of entitlement, history of violence, lack of subsequent remorse, arrogance, deceitfulness, aggression, and persistent disregard for the safety of others. James was facing a life sentence for murder. While the maximum penalty for one count of reckless conduct endangering life is 10 years, for now, James would be segregated from other inmates and confined to his cell for 23 hours a day. Listener, here's where part two of our story ends for today. But be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss part three. In our next episode, you'll hear more from the victim's families and learn whether James's mental health diagnosis and history of drug use would ultimately influence his punishment. You also learn about the outcome of the ongoing, intense public scrutiny applied to Victoria Police as they face judgment. You also learn about the outcome of the ongoing, intense public scrutiny applied to the Victoria Police as they face judgment by the state coroner for their role in the tragedy. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you, you can call the 24-hour National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799-7233 in the United States or your relevant emergency number. But for now, I think that just about wraps things up. Thank you for listening and keep the fire burning. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.